Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. comes into our mind so today on episode two um before we actually before we get started um let's talk about what's happening in our lives um with the coronavirus i know yeah it's it's very conflicting there is part of me that is bathing in this collective mass of domesticity that everyone is forced now to endure well people you know endure quote unquote but for me I I love it just because it's someone I'm I'm someone who loves being indoors and doing indoor activities um I literally read like 12 hours a day so but I guess I am also deeply deeply um sympathetic and feeling like very much useless in terms of not being able to help out with what's going on with so many people suffering under these conditions and yeah um a lot of people fearing for the f- their futures and this thing is going to leave a permanent scar on um yeah most people uh but yeah for me it's it's the economic impact that seems to be um dire for those who are not um in terms of their health not being affected but but yeah the 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 death toll across the world is staggering um and it's just troubling every morning i wake up and then i uh log onto my newsfeed and um and see the death toll um rising it's 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 really um it's really scary yeah how how have you been helen with your family you have two children yeah um I just let let the listener know that we're recording the podcast, which is our second one. <laughs> it's funny enough that we're recording it in a separate place, which we we initially wanted recorded together in the same room, but with all the social isolation, it's a bit difficult. Um, and also, it's illegal. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually illegal to to like every yeah. different states in Australia. Different states have mandated different laws. It's quite confusing. So. Um, for instance, um, yeah, in the last... We just want to play it right, you know, just for the health and the safety for it. Oh, totally. Yeah, but in the last yeah. couple of weeks, it's been it's been really hard because we are getting conflicting messages from the federal government right. and mm-hmm. the state government, so we don't really know what to do. So you, we, have, we had to be quite on top of things in, in regards to these changing laws. And there are cha- they are changing... Almost every day. Um, so, but yeah. but at the moment, yeah. it's it's technically illegal to go and visit someone if you don't have a, a medical or care taking role. A proper reason, yeah, yeah. So I guess um, my family is doing well. All the kids are have been at school for almost over just over two and a half weeks now, and. Sean, my husband, he's working from home. 
But I think we're just taking it one step at a time because, you know, like um, I think a lot of people panic because it happens so fast. And also that, as you said, that the conflicting information coming out from the government really confuses general public. Like you don't know what you should be, you know, doing. And we have the debates online about whether or not you should send kids to school, whether or not you should go to the park. And then now it's down to whether or not you should wear masks in the public. Yes. Yeah. Have you been wearing masks, Helen? Yeah, I've actually been wearing masks when I go to, um, when I know I'm going to a place that will be crowded, for example, going to the supermarket. But at the moment, I'm just trying to, um, you know, I really have to admit admit that our privilege now that I can actually order deliveries, come into, you know, just delivery onto, you know, onto our house. And and sorry to cut you off. But when you use the word privilege, yeah. you're ostensibly saying you got money, right? Yeah, you know, <laughs> the money and the resource. Yeah, you know, yeah. And the service that's actually provided in our area. I know that a lot of places, uh, for example, a lot of countries, they're, they're in total lockdown, which means that a lot of businesses are, you know, closed. So they can't, they can't even do deliveries or something like that. Yeah. What's the delivery fee for... for um? for t- having your groceries delivered? It's like 20 or 30 bucks, right? Yeah, it really depends on individual businesses. Some right. some of them will do free delivery if you, you know, order a certain amount of um, food and some of them will charge like $10, $20. It really depends. But it saves you the the mentality, the yeah. anxiousness yeah. of going out. Like you have to sterilize everything <laughs> you have to touch. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um just going around online, like everyone's sharing how you should sterilize you know, like sanitize everything when you come home. It's just crazy. Yeah. So Helen and I um we're part of a family of six and we have a Facebook and also um just a group chat. Um and we, we're all very connected to each other, the six of us and um and two of my sisters including Helen have kids and my brother's married so um all of us are always like sending in the last couple of weeks sending each other frantically a lot of videos about like Helen said how to sanitize your groceries when they come back and it's like i have to say i wasn't even able to finish watching the video because yeah, i just I grew yeah <laughs> i just grew impatient <laughs> I just grew impatient with um, having all that extra burden <sighs> um, flung upon me. I mean, it's it's stupid of me to say that I should be more careful, but um, I guess yeah. The the video was some of them was were quite tedious with the very seemingly well. It seemed quite severe for me. These rules, like one of them, had said something like leave your groceries in the car for three days, right? <laughs> for three days, yeah. Yeah, so that the virus, if it had gone on to any, any product, would die, I guess? Yeah, yeah. I think it wouldn't survive without any, um, I don't know, human contact or something like that. Yeah, right. Well, I haven't been doing that shit. Yeah. Okay, so should we get into what we are going to actually talk about? <laughs> yeah. Episode. So um, we wanted to bring to you guys an episode that is 
Something that we've been thinking about for a long time. Um, it's not coronavirus related, um, but it's it's just um, it's it's an important subject matter that um, I'm sure a lot of um, Asian Australians or Asian in a lot of Western countries have uh, experienced. Yeah, what do you think? So, what does it tell us? We are going to dig into the topic about um, does Asian women have a white fever? Do they actually have a preferences of race when they're dating or um, finding a partner? Yeah, so just prefacing this conversation, we know that all of you who are listening to this have been completely inundated with stuff in the last, say, decade about this subject area. But we're going to move uh, beyond the, the sort of basic elementary rhetoric of that and talk about um, our own personal feelings about it in regards to just how we have navigated the Australian space. So we wanted to do this podcast because, that, because we want to hear more Australian-Asian perspectives, which we find that um, is deeply, yes. deeply... Uh, uh, it, it's very scarce here in Australia. Yeah, definitely. Because on the um, before before uh, I was looking into the um, articles or researches into this kind of topic, um, the websites or the articles being written came up is mostly from which I'll be talking about um, throughout the podcast is probably more from the US and Canada, and there I. Don't think I could have found any studies, the actual study of the researchers that is based in Australia yet. Mm. Um, I guess it's probably because um, I don't know what would be the reason. What do you think that it hasn't been really surfaced? You be talked about. You mean this issue of how many how many women go after or like end up um, in romantic oh, relationships just, with white men? Is that what you mean? Uh, I think. Um, my, my my question is that it hasn't been really talked about that much. I mean, I've seen a couple of articles on um, ABC, but um, it will be mostly like they were talking about interracial couples, but mm. not specifically on Asian women with um, white partners. Yeah. Chinese people, um, diaspora in Australia make up only five, four or five percent of Australia's population. Okay. So that's yeah. quite small. Um, that might mm-hmm. be a re- reflection of why we haven't heard a lot of voices come out from that um, cohort. But um, I guess, I mean, for one, people, any, any conversation around race make Australians uncomfortable, right? Yeah, sometimes they feel like, oh, if you're starting to talk about race issues, you might be labelled as a racist or is it, um, it's just a bit of sensitive yeah. topic I feel to like, step around, I guess. Yeah, I feel like someone who I am like extremely racially sensitive and I use that word sensitive to mean like I am very prone to pick up on things that have underlying racial insinuations and whenever I pick up on that when I'm hanging around with friends they would always like they know me as someone who just calls out whiteness or calls out kind of any racist 
innuendos. Yeah, I think that's the word I'm looking for. That's innuendos. A big word. No. Yeah, and innuendos. Yeah, and but you, you do fear that you know if you if you raise the topic and people are saying that oh don't don't play the don't play the race card. Oh you know, it's yeah, I know. About race, you yeah. know, and I don't know. It just turns down on your like the motivation to bring the topic. Oh, to absolutely. Yeah, and also Kathy Hong Park, who has a memoir out called. I think minor feelings in th- this month. She's an American writer, um, and she says something in her um, one of her essays, something along the lines of um, that bringing up a racial issue in a conversation as an adult. Often you get treated as though like you're being petty, or you're like it's something like oh you should have grown out of that when you were at twelve. You know, it's like. Why are you still yeah. picking up on something like that? It's almost like unsavory to mention any sort of racial aspect of any conversation or space you're moving around. I find that deeply frustrating. Yeah. Yeah, because just some people, like, they really don't want, like I said, they really don't want to step around race issues because, one, they feel uncomfortable and, two, they're probably just don't want to offend people. But I think it's just the, the fear that they feel uncomfortable talking about it. Yeah, and like, and generally yeah. Australians are are uncomfortable with things like that because we don't have a history of talking about things that are as heavy as, you know, race. We don't have mm-hmm. the rhetoric and it's not something that people bring up easily at all. You know, <laughs> even amongst yeah. even amongst friends, I'm yeah. very very I'm very aware of who I bring up like I, I would I would often self censor I would often self censor when I'm hanging around people and I and I kind of let myself go in terms of like I, I look at my audience and I think is this person or these are these groups of friends going to be receptive to what I have to say? And most of the time I actually don't bring up a lot of things that are inside my head being aware that, you know, how I can be per- perceived, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's very selective. The audience yeah. that you need to be aware what kind of topics that you're talking about, especially on race. So like, whether or not they've had the similar experience to you, or whether or not that they have similar backgrounds to you, or you know, if they're just on totally opposite side, that you definitely don't want to bring it up. Yeah, well, I don't have any friends like that, so thank yeah. thank God. Um, I'm very selective about who I hang out with. <laughs> Um, that's a good thing oh yeah Yeah. you have to be the older you get the more important that becomes um but let's just tell listeners helen who um what your relationship status is and who you're married to okay so my husband's a fiji born new zealander would you i I don't even know fiji born (laughs) (laughs) born in fiji to um welsh slash um Kiwi parents, yeah. My in-laws are um, Welsh and New Zealander, white and New Zealander. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, not 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 Maori. Yeah, yeah. Um, so he was in New Zealand for first fifteen years, and he moved to Western Australia, and to that he finished um, his education there. Then he um, moved to Sydney for work. That's where we met and. Yeah, it's just I, I didn't really think that the race or the interracial dating was such a 
something to talk about when I was going out with him. It was, it's actually quite interesting because when we were going out, um, my husband, and he's the one that will pick out um, the interracial couples on the street when we're walking by. Um, so you're saying you don't, don't do that? Yeah, I don't feel any. I just thought that we're just a normal, sorry? So you mean you never did that? I don't really go and purposely observe other couples, whereas initially he did. He, he said that, oh, it feels like, you know, there's more interracial couples and we don't look so weird <laughs> on the streets. Right. Um, why do you, is, why do yeah, you think Sean... 15 almost 20 years ago when we first started going out yeah so why do you think why do you think sean was more observant um i don't really know i think he's just he's just want to find out whether or not there are more um couples like us so i guess it's social acceptance i don't know like um in in the articles I'll, I'll be talking about, um, I think there are um, stigma um, around some societies that doesn't accept um, interracial couples, especially for an uh, Asian background female um, dating or marrying a white guy. You know, it's because, you know, um, there's a... Um, probably people perceive as a, something that you want to move up as a status is a status symbol power symbol that you're trying to move upwards um yeah I, I think but I never like I never really thought about it until that I actually look into this topic yeah I'm like the complete opposite I find that my over observance is almost debilitating like I'm okay. crippled, I'm crippled by how much forethought I give to every single one of my desires. And the most conflicting uh-huh. one I have is the, my desire for white men. Like okay. it's, yeah, okay. it's, I guess, mm. um, I am someone who wants, by the way, these views that I'm having, I want to tell our listeners that it's really something that I'm very, very, like every idea I have in my head. I'm very open to having it changed and I want it to be changed. Mm-hmm. So one day I would love to reach a point where I can where I can ostensibly say if I was single, I would and yeah. I was standing in front of two men and one was an Asian and one was white or mm-hmm. or one was fat and one was very skinny, I wouldn't put any kind of preconceived desire yeah. or, or feeling um, I mean it's it's inevitable right um, because yeah, we are hard. yeah like if, if we if I talk about racial aspects of someone like a stranger I can't detach mm-hmm. that racial aspect from how tall they are how how um, how big broad their shoulders are how 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 they wear their hair you know little things like that yeah yeah that's funny that um, I'll probably start um, with the research I did with online, yeah, go ahead. there was a, a video by PBS, this is an American site, of course, um, which titled, um, Do Asian Women Have White Fever? This is from 2013, which is a bit old, but I think it's still very relevant yeah. nowadays. Um, so the video began with um, a, a small clip about of uh, like a dating, like a speeding dating situation. 
uh, where they connect um, Asian women with the local, um, it's just called them white, white dudes, you know, white guys. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the, the agency Jesus. said, here's yeah. her statistic. She says that um, her female, Asian female client, 70% of them prefers non-Asian men. Okay. Where only there's only thirty percent of um, Asian females um, are open to just solely meeting Asian men. So you know the 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 differences is there. You know, and the preferences of white male is still higher. And when they were asking the clients the reason, some women say, "Oh, maybe it's." Uh, the personality, they're more sincere and honest. <laughs> what the and fuck does that more, mean? They're more, they're more confident. I think there's oh a comparison, but it's very sub- subjective, isn't it? Because like, how many men do you have to meet between the Western, you know, the Caucasian and compare them to the Asian men to decide whether or not who's sincere and honest and who's confident? Absolutely. So I think it's, it's very subjective. I have to say that um, I think at the end of 2018, I flew to another city in for research purposes to go to this um, yep. dating speed dating event, um, yep. which I then later wrote about in um, Sydney Morning Herald about. So the the dating event was actually called uh, Asian women who Asian women like the category that evening was Asian women slash white men, and okay. the so reason it's very obvious it's very race based. Yeah, it? so. <laughs> Yeah, there are so many elements of fucked upness there. But um, the 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 reason I had to fly to Melbourne was because the one in Sydney was sold out. Okay. So that says a lot, right? Um, uh-huh. I'll let you guys think about that. But um, so uh, it was a very interesting night. Um, I have to say the most startling thing that I took out of that evening was I was interviewing the host. Now, the host was a man who was in his late 30s and his partner was um, an Asian woman. So the host is white, okay. his partner is Asian, and they told me uh, that they had met under those circumstances. So they had met an, on a speed dating event a couple of years ago. Oh, uh, So is that where they got their business idea? <laughs> I think so, but it wasn't the one that they had gone to wasn't racialized. So it wasn't segregated between, you know, white men, Asian women. Anyway, the the most startling thing that guy, that man said to me that night was when I asked him, why do you think that you're drawn to Asian women? Because he had started saying that he now de- had recently developed in the last few years, developed a, an, a, an attachment to Asian women. And he, and, and he said... They make me feel more like a man. Mm, okay. So, I mean, um, <laughs> I had to... I think that, that, yeah, okay, go on. Yeah, I, no, I just, I had to really hide um, my reaction, obviously, but yeah, it your, made me sad. Yeah, it made me really sad. And not because, I mean, first of all, it's really fucked up that he needs a type, a race, a, a, a different race of woman in order to feel more like a man. I mean, what does that uh-huh. say about his relationship to masculinity, right? And I should yeah. also say this guy was like my height, so he was not, not tall. tall. Yeah, um, and I think 
I want to be able to talk about that as well, but I'm still trying to figure out this height thing. Um, that's a whole nother sort of category of discrimination that I know I have. But this guy wasn't Uh tall. He wasn't unappealing. You know, he wasn't completely unattractive or unfortunate looking. He was like, he had a friendly face. But he definitely, like, he definitely ticked all the boxes in terms of trying to become the typical patriarchal mid-century masculinity kind of, he had a beard, he had a beard, he wore a suit. Mm-hmm. Um, Just a traditional conservative Yeah, and, and yeah. like, think about it, this guy had to, found himself being attracted to an entire race of women because he had this idea that every single female Asian looking woman was of a certain type. Like say he, he said, I think what I'm trying to say is that his masculinity, which is the mid century masculinity that dominates the white world is one in which, um, is one in which is predicated on the subordination of women and, even now, in a lot of Eastern Asian countries and a lot of other Asian countries, um, feminism, like feminism, um, hasn't traversed the sort of contemporary space. And so a lot of women still remain today exhibiting behaviours that are traditionally, like, quote, unquote, feminine. They're submissive, they're quiet, they're docile. I, I still know a lot of those women. Uh-huh. But I guess it's like we we really like uh, on this way for femi- feminism, I think um, we should try to look into like how we can perhaps taking up those traits and not, I don't know whether or not to give them a level, to give them like a positive or negative level, which is, yeah, I'm trailing off, sorry. Um, I, I just want to go back to the video. Um. So there was a professor of Asian American studies uh, from UC Berkeley, uh, Professor Kim. Um, she stated that uh, on the interracial couples, she said that attraction is hard to explain. So it's almost unexplainable. But also that she also said that the attraction is encouraged something in the society. So do you think social influences of, uh, for example, heights, wealth, appearance and power um, might, might give people preferences over, you know, why in the selection of their partners? Yeah, what no, totally, think? totally, absolutely. I, I'm still struggling with, <laughs> I'm still struggling with this height thing um, because I don't like it. I don't like that I am so uncontrollably attracted to this one aspect of a human being and that is their height it's just it's really fucked up and I don't know how to I think it's in our biology like um typically you want to have like if you're I I think it's just a very humanity biology that when you want to perhaps you want to have your offsprings that are healthy tall and heights has always been like a symbol of power don't you think right Maybe, yeah. I just think that, yeah. I don't know, I maybe I'm just drawn to the optics of it, you know? Because, like, if you see mm-hmm. pictures of traditionally beautiful couples, the man is always much taller than the woman. And so maybe yeah. I'm drawn to the optics of it. I'm just drawn to being perceived to be in a traditionally attractive coupledom. 
Yeah, I think so. The appearances over overall, it's pretty much the social influence. You think? Yeah, I for think for me, yeah, that's that's really fucked up. I don't like that about myself, but I can't help it. But I mean, mind you, that doesn't mean I don't date men like my height or men who are just a little bit taller than me like my past boyfriends haven't been like some of them haven't been that much taller mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm just speaking on a very like superficial level at the moment mm-hmm. okay so I want to get on to um, just continue what uh, Professor Kim has stated um, she also said that um, uh, some Asian women have um Actually, it doesn't only come from Asian women, which is very interesting. Some Asian um, Asian American men um, would claim saying that uh, the Asian women who are dating or married to um, Caucasian males, mm-hmm. um, there are implications of colonialism. Yeah, do you think there's a inferiority, superiority, you know, issues between this? Um, Perhaps the Asian American man feels like that they claim the woman is a property that the the power dynamics and the struggle has been taken away from them, or something like that. I can't speak for an Asian American man. I can't speak for an Asian man. I can't speak for a man. Um, but I can see how they could um, perceive that definitely, um, and it's very hurtful. I know that. Um, that there, another podcast, shout out to Plan A, they have been excellent in um, discussing these, these sort of subject matters from an Asian-American male perspective. What do you think is that? Do you think that because um, Asian-American men um, still are very conservative, you know, yeah. they, they claim their woman, they, they say it's their woman, the Asian woman, as a property and they didn't think that, you know... Um, it should be they they should be dating or marrying the yeah. Caucasian male. This is part of the reason why I I think I haven't cons- I haven't historically been drawn to I'm gonna paint a really broad brush when I say this. Um broad stroke, sorry. Um mm-hmm. I haven't been attracted to Asian guys. I think it's because the Asian men who I have interacted with have tended to exhibit rather uh, traditional conservative values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand. Um, and yeah. I think it's not, just... even fa- not only family, I think there's a possess what's the word? Um possessiveness yeah. of proprietorial. Like yeah, yeah. Um, the, whoever they're gonna marry or whoever they're dating. Yeah, and I think in the back of my mind, I have this perception that they all do that. I mean, that is the racist part of me who has those messages circulating in my head. And, you know, I'm trying to get rid of the, I'm trying to get rid of it. Um, but the thing is, I'm trying to get rid of like 30 years of indoctrination, 30 years of watching films where the Asian male is almost in like contemptible, you know, when they are... Well, it's hard because we, on we're movies. growing up in a in the in a society where most media and entertainment that we have or we've seen are mostly white. 
and it's and and the Asian persona that's been presented on to the media for what we've seen or what we grow up, it's pretty much the ones that's not been really desirable, is it? Yeah, desirability. That's the thing. That's the thing that I really haven't, and I'm like still thinking about. Um, all my ideas are always fluctuating in my head and I want them to be challenged and I want them to be changed. But this idea of desirability and who gets to be desired um, is something that, you know, white culture has totally, totally inundated us with their ideology that only a white guy, only a tall white guy, only a tall, straight, white, charming, bearded guy um, deserves our affection or deserves our attention. And I'm always like, I'm always really frustrated by the representation of what, um, Asian or people of color, Asian people in like TV series, in books, in films, like um, literally it's, it's gotten to the point where when I'm watching a movie, say with Kev, Kev's our, my, our brother, um, he, like I, I would, because like, He's one of the few people I can beat completely and unapologetically myself. I actually have to tame myself these days with him because he's called me out for it. But um, I, I would like the other day we were watching Birds of Prey with uh, Margot Robbie. I think that I believe okay, that came yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That movie. yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. So it's a highly violent movie. I didn't like it at all. Yeah. But anyway, uh-huh. um, there were some Asian characters in there, right? And every time I saw an Asian face, I do this with my friends, Billy and Carl as well. When I go see movies with them, I would like point them out and it's just, they, they always, they're always a flash on the screen. They only occupy like a few seconds of every movie that they happen to be in. So it's, they're always on the margins. We're always pushed to the periphery. And I mean, if you're a kid growing up and you see those kind of movies for 30 years, that does something oh, to you. Oh, you've not seen that at all. Like when we were growing up, like we were talking about Asians growing up in Western countries, that like we hardly see any um, Asian faces on the mainstream media. Like yeah. there's no reporters. There's a, it's only becoming like the last decade or even less in the last five, eight years that we finally having a bit more um, people of colour onto, on, onto the screen. Yeah. I still think it's really shit, but... Yeah, it's like, not enough. It's definitely not enough. Yeah, yeah. But like the other day, I, I saw a, someone someone's feed on um, Twitter. I believe it was an, one of the hosts of Plan A, and he said that he had read t- Breakfast at Tiffany's. And you know, there's a whole controversy about that film and how Mickey Rooney's character, you know, pa- parodies a Japanese crazy Japanese man. And it's very racist. It's completely racist. Mm-hmm. It's hyperbolic his uh portrayal of an of a japanese uh man um i yeah yeah, but um like he's still talking about the racial implications of that movie and when was that movie made like in the 60s right 1961 yeah that's like how many yeah how many years ago now like 50 60 years right um and we're still talking about it today and the racial implications of that one portrayal um yeah because like that was a film 60 years ago, oh, sorry, 50 years ago. And yet we're still talking about how that one minor character in this massive so-called classic film is 
affecting the daily lives of Asian American men. Like, isn't that ludicrous? One yeah. film, you know? It's very sad. Yeah. And then, like, there's another one, and there's another movie where there's a very obnoxious, nerdy looking kid. I think it's like um, 16 Candles or something. Do you know which one I'm talking about? No, no, I don't. Oh, but it was a film in the it's 80s, I think. Film? Yeah, it was a film in the 80s or 90s, and there was a very obnoxious, like, side character who also happened to be Asian. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I hate it when, when the, when they have stereotyped. Yeah. Well, when, yeah. when they include people of color, but it's always in a very, very frivolous. It's a very narrow narrative. Yeah. It's yeah. very insulting, a right? Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, just coming back on what we're talking about, like the interracial couples between Asian women and white man um there's a dr benjamin tom from who is he from california institute of integral studies okay um he's a psychotherapist anyway um he said that the social perceptions are reinforced by stereotypes so it's like how we how we perceive um our preferences of choosing a mate. It's it. A lot has come from you know what the society has passed down, and also what we've been presented, and especially the last century or so. You know, from the media, entertainment, what the exposure, um, and especially you because you grew up like I had exposures of Asian entertainment, whereas you grew up, I guess, a lot of like second generation of immigrants would have the only just the the sole exposure of white media. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think it's coming to be, I think it's becoming a little bit different in the last uh, couple of years where I think the, um, probably we can talk about in, in another episode, the race of um, K-pop. You yeah. know, I, I've seen the race of K-pop have kind of drawn a younger generation of Asians back into following or, you know, having the Asian idols. What do you think? Yeah, and I guess I'm that that concerns me because it's it's almost like they needed to be they needed to be celebrated by the mass white audiences in um, America in order to feel oh, like yeah, it's right. valid. They have a need to have a proof. Yeah. Yeah, proof that oh yeah, the white people have a, have um, validated us as like worthy of their desires and their tastes, you know. Um, I don't like that, I guess. Um, but yeah, I am. I think I'm hyper vigilant of my desires because I am so aware that, like, I have this theory at the moment, which is kind of every day shifting and moving. I almost in my head, I see it as like a. This theory I have in my head is something in my he- something like something jelly made of jelly I feel in my head it's like a statue not a statue it's like a sculpture made of made of gelatin maybe and it, it every day it's either like melting or hardening or like being stripped away or being blown around in my head because I feel like it needs to change and the theory is basically that everything that I desire, everything that I find attractive and appealing is not something I was born with. It's actually something that 
uh, it's not original obviously my my this sculpture in my head is not original um everything that i like everything that i desire has been thrust upon me yeah yeah like i, I think like yeah i'm saying the social um influence have a large um you know uh it, it is a big influence onto our um preferences yeah i don't think i innately i wasn't born with any i don't think any like inherent desires i think my desires have grown out of the knowledge that this set of desire will put me in the company of these sets of people and these sets of people are the people I want to spend time with. So for instance, um, I am uh, crazy about the New Yorker. And what does that mean? It means that I am in a very narrow margin of people who read the New Yorker. And that is very, very ostensibly white, upper middle class, um, you know, who are most people who read the New Yorker are probably people who are in the top, you know, echelons of society. Um, they go to the opera, they spend, you know, their um, summers vacationing in Martha's Vineyards or no, do people go to Martha's Vineyard in summer? I don't know. Um, I shouldn't say that so because. There's a certain social status. Yeah. That you think that you prefer to spend time with. I hope it's not though. I I feel like um one thing that I have interrogated and I've come to accept is my love of books. So I'm obsessed with books. I read like I said literally 12 hours a day. And I used to I actually um developed my love of books in university um in my second or third year because I was in love with a couple of different men and they were all really well-read men. They were all boys actually couple of men and a few yeah. boys but they were all really into books um they were all really literary and I found like cerebral literary people very very sexy right and so I wanted to move in those spaces and so what I did when I was at university was every year at UNSW that's the university I went to we would have these um book sales at around like Anzac Day I believe or Easter and I would and and I would go apeshit crazy. I would spend hundreds of dollars on like um a, like ugh, poetry books and old classics. And so at home, um, I would have like this massive bookshelf full of books because I liked the optics of what it looked like. I liked uh, the a, visual. Yeah, yeah the I liked. I liked. No, I liked. What I mean, hell is, I liked being perceived as someone who was a reader that for me so you want to present yourself as but you, you don't need to really present it because you're already doing it no yeah i'm saying that's how i got into it so i got into it because i i wanted to be someone who appeared to be well read but then but then i now am well read because i've just i guess that's the language i found myself most comfortable in expressing myself and moving through the world this way but you haven't, like, if we're talking about on what we're talking about today in this episode, that you haven't actually encountered, like, an Asian man who have similar background to you um, and have a similar, I guess, the degree of education and interest. Well, that, no. Do you think if you, come, if you come by with, if you encounter someone who's have all those qualities but he's an Asian man, would you be able to date him oh what are you talking about of course i would love that i mean that would be perfect right i could tick my own boxes as well as my parents boxes 
<laughs> but no, the thing is, um, I have actually spoken to one of my friends, Linda, about this. Linda's also, she works for Focus um, as a marketing um, person, I believe. But Linda and I, she's from a Chinese background, and she and I were saying how it's strange in the Australian literary spaces, it's like, say, 90% white. And the few Asian people and the few Asian men that we meet are always gay. Now, there's nothing wrong with gay Asian men, obviously. But, like, where are the heterosexual Asian men who are into books? Okay, I think uh, it comes down to culture again. Because if you're talking about... Um, I, I'm I'm speaking on a very narrow perspective, okay, from our own family experience, okay, and growing up knowing that, um, thinking that Asian men would prefer or being encouraged to be... Um, Entry careers such as I don't know the top what's the top three ones for Asians law doctor law doctor and engineering yeah engineer yeah so they're very, all very technical so I I don't assume that they will be pushed to do something like writing mm, I love that what I'm saying? yeah so I never thought about that hard it will be hard for Asian men um, to. <gasps> to be really into writing unless that they're really really passionate about it oh my god that's yeah you've yeah because like the asian because i see my brother and he's still i think very he's still enmeshed in that pressure to provide for his family yeah and like you don't really make much when you're a writer who the fuck no no one goes into writing to make money no way yeah that's right yeah oh my god yeah of course well that makes sense Okay, the the people who actually write are actually unless that you're really passionate about it, that you really want to do something with writing, you want to express yourself, sharing mm. your ideas, things like that, or you're from a very, you're already very privileged. You don't really have to worry about, you know, providing yeah. it for your family. Yeah. Then you can just go free, you know, do write whatever that you want. Yeah, but I think the the both of them, both of those types are not exactly what Asian culture have, you know, given to their kids. Also, I have to say, I mean, you would probably be able to speak to this more than me, Helen, but, like, um, we come from a society that is very collective as opposed to individualistic. So it's not it's not something that traditional conservative Chinese or, you know, anyone from the Asian diaspora to focus on themselves. And writing is ostensibly something that you do um, to... It's like at least personal expression, yeah. You know, because we were, we were. I, I would say that our our background Taiwanese has become a bit more individualistic in the past couple of decades. But our parents have probably, you know, given us the idea when we were growing up that you know don't make yourself stand out or just totally, <laughs> yeah, just conform, yeah. But I think um, oh, that's depressing. Maybe in the coming generations, hopefully, you know, there will be a bit more Asian female and male writers, you know, in the Western countries. I know there is a it is becoming a lot, a bit more. But um, whether or not we're really penetrating that industry is still a question. Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Um. So. I have uh, got a couple, I think I've got two, actually three more articles I've got um, that 
I want to talk about with the so-called white fever. Um, the next one's from the Half Post Personal. This is actually from last year, so it's relatively new. So Tira Chen, she's writing about that she struggles to identify that she's engaged to a white man. Oh, my God, I read that. I hated it. Oh, you read that? Okay. So she said the prevalence of Asian women with white men kind of give her the perpetuation of the Asian fetish. What do you think? I, I don't really agree with that. That's probably how she feels because of her own experience of growing up. Um, if she was dating a white guy, um, people would immediately label her boyfriend saying that because he's got an Asian fetish. Yeah, but well, I think it's very subjective. Yeah, yeah well, that, in the past when I've had white boyfriends, like nine out of ten times, and I know that none of my boyfriends have been um, labelled someone who has um, Asian fetish. Um, sorry, yellow fever. Um, I think it's becoming more progressive. I think there's less people, uh, I believe there still are, some white guys have Asian fetish that just prefer to have an Asian partner because they probably think they're more submissive. Like they, they like you said, with a with a guy you met in Melbourne, um, with a dating event, you know, they make um him to be more masculine. Yeah. Yeah, I fear Yeah, younger younger generations I think it's a bit more about individual rather than the actual race. Yeah. I, f- I fear that we we still I don't think we are encouraged to be on an individual level people who interrogate our own desires. And so when I say that I have been drawn historically to white men, I think it's because, I mean, there are a million different reasons I could go on forever. But one of the top reasons is I think because um, I, and I still do, I I grew up watching a lot of film and film is such a big part of who I am as a human being, like how I engage with the world. And uh, like most of the films that I've seen growing up, I wasn't taught how to interpret film or to engage with a film. So I took a film at face value. And like all the films, they the uh, most of the films I grew up watching were American and most of them yes. were like rom-coms of some sort. Yes. And all of them yes. featured a white male protagonist, right? And so, yeah. and every single film, it's not even a rom-com, every single film that you watch, even like, you know, um, recent films, they always humanize the white they're male. very dominated by straight. Yeah. White, straight white male, and they're always humanized. And what I mean by that is the gaze, the camera gazes at them, and, we're, and we, we sit with a male character, even if he's not doing anything on the screen, we sit with him for the better part of a film, right? A few hours. And just by sitting with him, we're learning on a very deep visceral level, on a very unspoken level, we're learning that this is who we should value. We should value this human being because we're giving time and effort and lighting to this human face, which looks like all the men I've ever been drawn to. Yeah. Yeah. So like if I go to a bar and there's a, 
um, there's a there's an Asian guy sitting next to a white guy. All these things, this te- like three decades of history in my head that is telling me the white guy has more humanity than the Asian dude because I've only ever seen a white guy being given that much revere and respect and storyline, you know? Which is interesting because the, on, on that subject, um, I don't know if you read the article from the cut from Celeste. Mm. Oh, my God. That's ex- – yeah, fuck. That's like so – that's a cult following that article. I have, yeah. Yeah, she's talking about when Asian women are harassed for marrying non-Asian men. <laughs> yeah. um, there's something that she wrote in that article, um, as in saying the preferences um, of uh, Caucasian male over Asian male. Um, in her, I, I wouldn't say that it's an uh, argument, but I think it's from her feeling. She's saying that growing up in a majority of whites, you know, when you're surrounded by Caucasians, but Asians are your family and your cousins. So you don't have that sexual uh, urge. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's a reasonable, I guess, would that, would that be a reasonable argument, you think? I think so. Like I'm very, like I said, I keep saying, I'm very open to be ch- being challenged. But at this moment, that is one of the reasons I've been tackling with because you and I, we grew, we grew up in a very, very militantly conservative and sheltered, uh, sheltered um, upbringing, right? In a household that, yeah. I mean, our curfew, my curfew up until the age of 22 was 6 p.m. So I lived at, I lived at home until the age of 22 and my curfew was 6 p.m., like rigid curfew. And so like, um, so we, our, our parents were very conservative, but um, the only, the only Asian man that I saw growing up for the, for my 22 years, right, was literally my father and my brother. Uh, that was the only deep connection I had. So my parents, our parents didn't have any family friends. We had no one. We had no connection. We were very isolated. Yeah. But it's also, but also that you, you tend to make friends. Your, your social circles are a bit more Caucasian, wouldn't it? Oh, like well. Whereas compared to me, I, I have, I will probably say that I have more Asian friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, my, I, I get, yeah, I, what I was saying before was like, we had back to the Celeste Ng, um, sort of her theory that she's not attracted to Asians because they were all part of her family. I think I kind of can see that in my own reflection. If I reflect back on my own life, because like I, I didn't, I didn't watch any Asian movies growing up. And so I yeah, never saw no exposure for you for like Asian, I don't know, male <laughs> idols. Exactly. Uh, like I was never taught to be sexually attracted or to give my sexual, um, labor or not labor, my sexual sort of, um, yearnings towards an Asian man, because I only ever saw an Asian man as my brother and my father. And that was it, you know? Yeah. Like, we literally had no other models. Yeah. That's for you, yeah. But I did grow up, I did grow up, you know, following a couple of Asian idols. So I didn't think race was such an issue for me when I was dating. I was thinking because I, I'm into, you know, I'm, I'm a bit more individualistic rather than choosing um, people who, who I date, you know. I don't really, it's not really based on race for me. 
Yeah. Yeah, I wish I was like that. I feel like you're very, you're so much more stronger than me in that sense. I'm very porous. That's something that I feel like is, I'm still grappling with. Um, mm. I don't like that about myself. Do you think, do you think if you started starting to be exposed to more Asian culture, media, film, and whatever, that you'll feel more, uh, I don't know, desired? Asian men, oh, you, you mean if I, if I, yeah, I think um, what I've learned in the last couple of weeks being holed up at home and really just going apeshit crazy with my reading and like being in my own space and having my own time is that I think I'm attracted to, I'm attracted to, I will only be attracted to someone who shares my love of books or who sees the world or who moves through the world in a very very nuanced and like in a way that only a writer or a reader can move through the world. It's very particular. I think like I, I, I couldn't be in, I couldn't never be in a relationship with someone who say for like, doesn't read books at all or who isn't interested in expanding their mind cerebrally. Like I, I, I think I think a healthy relationship needs to be based on a sharing of this love outside of two human beings, you know, outside of you and your partner, you have this one other thing that you, you're both really obsessed with. I think that's the sort of relationship I find most beautiful and endearing is when two parties come together and they just like fucking go like salivate over, you know, a poem, a poem by, you know, Audrey Lord or something. Yeah, yeah. I think it's true. As in, like, um, relationship-wise and love really has nothing of selling out of people, you know, whether or not it's their race or their ethnicity or culture. It really comes down to just basically two individuals. Yeah. I think um, what I'm trying to say, just on your last point about two individuals coming together, I think actually that I disagree with that. Only what I mean when I say that is I think when when a person when two people come together they bring their whole the the physiognomy of their face represents a lot of political baggage, I guess, you know. And I wish I didn't think about that. I wish I didn't I wish I didn't associate a white male face with, you know, colonialism and imperialism and whatever, patriarchy and entitlement and, you know, all those things I wish and power and power, you know, but it's not easy. Yeah. I wish I didn't, but I can't help it. I would love to be able to move to a place where like, I guess my ideal version of the, the perfect partnership would be one where I don't see, where I don't racialize the person I'm in love with, you know? Any further thoughts? Um, no, that's about it. Yeah, I, I think we hit our one hour mark and we should just wrap it up. Yeah. Okay, so um, I guess um, you, I hope you're all doing your things at home and staying safe. Um, and taking it day by day and being kind to yourselves. Uh, I know that for me, every day I'm talking to people on the phone and 
um, really getting in tune with my own body and my own heart um, and having opening up conversations with people who share my worldview and that's been very um, healing I think and taking it just day by day um, and uh, yeah how about you Helen what are you going to do for the next week um, yeah, I think it's taking it day by day and keep connection with um, each other, especially family, friends, um, particularly those friends who live by themselves, yeah, the single ones, and just, I don't know, whichever way that you want to connect with them, um, call them, or if you feel it's more comfortable, if you want to text them, and exercise, I think exercise is very important. Yeah. Oh yeah, I've got to go to my just daily, yeah, two-hour walk later. Although I have to be careful, last like two days ago I went walking um, at around five o'clock um, around Sydney Park, and there were so many people. I have never seen so many people. Oh, yeah. It was crazy. There's nowhere else to go. <laughs> yeah, most people live in apartments around where I live. Yeah, but uh, hey, just, yeah, stay, stay, yeah, stay safe, everyone. Yeah, and uh, one last tip: uh, give yourself a goal for this quarantine. Uh, period and that's what we've done in our family we've uh, held ourselves accountable to one goal that we want to keep up and fulfill um, in the next couple of months while we stay hold up at home held held up at home hold up at home anyway um so uh I'm going to tell Helen what I've my goal is after she tells me mine what's been your goal Helen oh I think I want to just be able to do 60 minutes of yoga actually well, why is that hard for you sorry why is that hard for you no I'll, I haven't really been that keen in doing yoga but I saw that you know with all the social isolation if you want to do something exercise and I you know that I love rock climbing I can't really go to climbing center now because all of them are closed so I thought maybe I'll try go back and uh, do yoga so I download this app, which is free at the moment. So they have like a gradual progress where you start from like 10 minutes and you can move up to 20 minutes. So eventually I want to see that if I can do 60 minutes and just, you know, help myself to improve my flexibility. So when everything goes back to normal that I can, you know, perhaps starting to do rock climbing again, that I don't lose the ability and the skills. Yeah, sweet. And yourself? Beautiful. Yeah. I'm learning Russian. So I took up Russian with my right. one of my good friends, Kyle, um, a few months ago. And our our lessons before this whole lockdown were was at Sydney Uni. But, um, but it has been online in the last couple of weeks. So we've been Zooming uh, lessons with our teacher, Sergei. And it's been highly, highly enriching. It's, it's so much fun. Learning another language is something I really can't believe that it's taking me this long to engross myself within but Russian is so beautiful it's so intellectual sounding I think yeah great fantastic okay well um we'll see you guys next week okay cheers bye Bye.